0: Hey, it's Jesse Dukes. And you may have noticed Chicago is bustling with tourists. Love them or not, tourism boosts Chicago's economy. And our city by the lake has been a tourist destination for quite some time. So we're going to take an imaginary trip back to 1910, when charming omnibus drivers entertained tourists along Lakeshore Drive.
1: Over here on your left is the Mrs. Potter Palmer Castle. It takes money to live on the drive.
0: And we note that while downtown Chicago has hosted tourists of all races, black people and other people of color
2: haven't always felt safe. I mean, we know that there was a fair amount of violence that existed, that a, a person just crossing into the wrong neighborhood could be attacked. And later
0: in the show, Chicagoans have long had interesting feelings about their relationship to New York.
3: Can I be psychological for a second? I mean, I think it was sort of an inferiority complex.
0: How a rivalry that goes back to before the turn of the century led to a nickname Chicagoans proudly embrace today. That's all coming up.
2: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
0: Curious City gets most of its questions from people in Chicago, but here's one all the way from Seattle from John Gardner. John loves trains, and a few summers ago, he was planning a train ride to Chicago. He also likes history, so he imagined what it might have been like to arrive by train in Chicago over a hundred years ago.
4: If you were a vacationer to Chicago in 1910,
0: what attractions would you visit? Uh, Which of them are lost to time, and which of them still remain today? We took on John's question back in 2016, with help from one of our favorite local
5: journalists. I'm journalist Robert Lorzell, and I'll be your guide on a trip through 1910 Chicago. I'll have highlights of what drew tourists from cheap day trips to African-American entertainment to the seedier side of the city. To have the most fun with John's thought experiment, think about this. What do you tell friends and family to do when they visit Chicago? According to the Tribune back in 1910, this was the typical way Chicagoans greeted out-of-town friends when they showed up for a visit.
0: Hello! Glad to see you! Have some lunch and then we'll go out to the stockyards and see how swift armor can kill hogs.
5: Uh, yeah, the city's most famous tourist attraction was the Union Stockyards, where millions of cattle and hogs were slaughtered every year. Hog slaughtering was 1910's Buckingham Fountain, if you will. But at the same time, people like city planner Daniel Burnham and the Association of Commerce were promoting a cultured sort of tourism. They urged visitors to see the Art Institute, Orchestra Hall, and Lincoln Park Zoo. One commerce official said, We show them the city beautiful. We take them by the
2: hand and lead them out to pastures green, the parks and boulevards, and say to them, This, too, is part of Chicago.
5: All is not hustle and bustle here but hustle and bustle prevailed at chicago's six train stations 1600 passenger trains arrived or departed every day a million and a half people came every summer many visitors came from small midwestern towns lured by bargain train fares. some of the small town folks had never seen so many tall buildings before so they might pay 25 cents for a view from the observation tower in the auditorium building one of Chicago's tallest buildings in 1910. You get a panoramic view of the city and Lake Michigan. Here's Julia Backrack, the Chicago Park District's historian.
4: The summers were extremely hot, and people raved about Lake Michigan and how they thought of it as an ocean. And that we still get that from visitors today. People who had never been here before are completely blown away.
5: This was 10 years after the Chicago River was reversed. So Lake Michigan wasn't polluted with sewage like it was before. By 1910, more people were swimming in it. For scenic views of the lake, tourists could take a guided tour on Lakeshore Drive, riding on an open-air omnibus. Rides cost 50 cents. That would be $12 in today's money. In July 1910, the Tribune quoted a driver named Tom Butler who was taking some tourists out for a spin on one of these rubberneck wagons.
1: We're now on Lakeshore Drive, the city's most famous residence thoroughfare. To the right, off there near the lake, is what is known as Streeterville. Over here on your left is the Mrs. Potter Palmer Castle. It takes money to live on the drive. I'm now going to take you over here, a block or two, where I have a friend who just opened a new saloon. If you folks watch the wagon for a minute, I'll hoist a fresh one.
5: That was just one of several saloons where he stopped. His passengers decided it wasn't safe to continue their trip with Butler at the wheel, so they got off in Lincoln Park. According to the Tribune, Lincoln Park was becoming the city's most popular spot for tourists.
0: So many tales have been told of its beauty and charm that it is difficult to find anybody within 500 miles of the city who has not heard of it.
5: On the south side, Jackson Park drew tourists with its landscapes and lagoons. Historian Julia Backrack says visitors also flocked to the west side's new Garfield Park Conservatory. It was promoted as the largest indoor plant collection in the world.
4: Jens Jensen, the great naturalistic landscape architect, had designed it. A couple of the rooms had these lagoons as a centerpiece. And so there was actually water in the room. And, of course, he's famous for his use of stone. And so there would be these waterfalls, particularly in the fern room. And they'd see this waterfall and they said, oh, my gosh, how did they do this? How did they build a structure around a waterfall? And, of course, it wasn't natural at all.
5: Now, what if you were an African-American visiting Chicago? In 1910, the great migration of blacks from the South hadn't yet begun, but Chicago had 44,000 African-American residents, and it was attracting black visitors.
2: The Chicago Defenders circulated widely. Pullman Porters, people who worked on trains, would travel from Chicago south down to New Orleans and other places, and they would tell stories about how amazing Chicago was, and that would excite the imagination of people who wanted to come or move to the city.
5: That's Harvey Young. He's chair of the theater department at Northwestern University and he's also a professor of African-American studies. For one thing, he says, African-Americans went to the same parks we just talked about. Even though Chicago was segregated residentially, the Art Institute and public parks were officially open to everybody. Usually, all was peaceful. But Young says black people had to be on their guard.
2: If you're one of a couple of a brown complexion people, <laughs> you know, in, in Grand Park or Lincoln Park, and there's thousands of people um, who are not sharing that same complexion, then you might be a bit more vigilant, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that there was a fair amount of violence that existed that a, a person just crossing into the wrong neighborhood could be attacked.
5: But Young says there's one place Black tourists made sure to visit in 1910, the Pekin Theater at State Street and 27th. It was the country's first major Black-owned theater.
2: And it was founded by Robert Motts, who was a gambler, (laughs) but he was also a person who was passionate about theater and the arts. The best black entertainers traveling across the country would stop at the Pekin. You could have an amazing meal, lobster and fine wine and drinks and champagne there.
5: The Pekin offered ragtime and opera music, but it also featured plays, silent movies, and an amazing trained monkey called Consul the Great. When heavyweight champion Jack Johnson would fight somewhere else in the country, telegrams describing those boxing matches round by round were read aloud on the Pekin stage. Here's what African-American Vaudeville star Sherman Dudley said after a night at the Pekin. I have
4: never felt so proud of being a colored man. The Entertainment was a revolution and showed just what Negroes can and must do in the near future.
5: In 1910, the stretch of State Street from 26th Street to 35th was becoming an entertainment district called The Stroll. The Pekin Theater and the rest of The Stroll catered to mostly black audiences. But Young says some whites came too.
2: There was a desire to experience uh, this energy that was being created not only by the people who lived on the South Side, but also this influx of, of black migrants from the South. It was exciting. You know, There was a buzz for people to come in and be in an an environment that was unlike the Rhone.
5: The Pekin closed in 1911, but the stroll lasted for years, turning into a scene for a new style of music called jazz. Finally, here's one more sort of visitor to consider. To use a modern term, they were sex tourists. Every night, thousands of men from out of town went to a part of Chicago called the Levee. It wasn't in the guidebooks. And it definitely wasn't an example of what Daniel Burnham called the city beautiful. Now, one thing we should explain, there was no actual levee holding back flood water. In 1910, a levee was slang for a red light district. Chicago's was on the south side and near west side. Here's how Charles Washburn, who was a local reporter at the time, described it. Noise blared from the pianos. The red lights gleamed. Men, young and middle-aged, reeled from saloon to body house. Girls led their customers from the dance halls to the Ever-Ready hotels. The most famous brothel was the Everly Sisters Club on Dearborn near 21st Street.
4: Because what they decided to do was make the most fantastic, beautiful, luxurious brothel that had
5: ever been seen in the world. This is Ken Melvoinberg, who leads Weird Chicago's guided tours of the former levee.
4: There was a gold-plated piano. The spittoons were made out of gold. They actually released um, hundreds of live butterflies. It was not designed as a brothel for the common man or the clerk, but it was more for the people that had checkbooks, which were captains of industry, wealthy people.
5: Melvoinberg says most of the brothels were way scuzzier than the Everly Club. These places had lookouts who'd watch for police and recruit customers.
4: Hey, Mac, what are you doing? Welcome to the Levee District. You looking for some action? This is the place to go. We got gambling, we got
5: beer, we got stuff behind the counter, and we got women. He says most of the Levee's sex workers were in a bad situation.
4: The majority of them, this was against their will, you know, what they were doing. And they were addicted to drugs. And they were, they were literally stalls that were right next to each other, just like a horse stall.
5: People have been complaining about these conditions for years. The outrage got loud enough that city officials shut down the levee in 1912. So, if you had a time machine and you could go back to 1910, what would you see? John Gardner, who asked the question that prompted this story, says he'd take a tour of the stockyards, even though he's a vegetarian. Too bad the stockyards shut down in 1971. But this summer, he hopes to see some of the same things tourists saw in 1910. The Garfield Park Conservatory, the landscape parks, the old skyscrapers.
0: In fact, as time goes on, as you tell me more and more facts, I just find myself more and more desperate to get there. That was Robert Lorzell. Coming up, I explore the origins of Chicago's rivalry, or inferiority complex, with a certain major city in the Northeast. I moved to Chicago in 2015, and I quickly noticed something about the place. Something that made it into a bunch of the early stories i reported for Curious City. And in 2016, I took on a question from a guy named Anthony, who seemed to have noticed something similar. Here's Anthony. Um, Anthony? Jesse, this is Sean in the control room. Um, Anthony never actually responded to our emails, so new plan here. I'm going to read his question, okay? Uh, okay go ahead. Anthony writes, why does our inferiority complex toward New York exist, and when exactly did it start? Okay, thanks, Sean. Uh, So, I guess Anthony's talking about stuff like, you know, deep dish versus New York pizza, Cubs versus Mets, Second City Theater versus Saturday Night Live. But those are rivalries, right? And Anthony didn't say rivalry. He said inferiority complex. Now, you might bristle a little at that term, but let's do a little experiment. Here I am downtown, I'm just gonna walk around and ask some people what cities they think rival Chicago. Definitely New York. New York.
5: Yeah. New York.
0: Yep, first three I talked to, Chicagoans consider New York their rival. But what about New Yorkers? We asked our friend Emmanuel, who lives in New York, to check it out.
5: What do you think are New York's rivals? Tokyo. Maybe Paris, Tokyo, um, Atlanta. Atlanta?
4: Yeah.
5: Um, London.
4: I think Los Angeles. And
5: Venice, that's it.
4: Miami is one. Um, New Orleans. I mean, Jersey City
5: in New Jersey. Nothing really. I would actually say nothing. What about Chicago? Uh,
0: Chicago? No, it's not the same thing. I don't know. I mean, Chicago's like
5: Chicago. You don't really hear much about it.
0: So, Anthony might be onto something. If you think you're in a rivalry and the other side doesn't, that may be an inferiority complex. Well, it's too bad Anthony's not here, because I'm going to tell you about a time when New Yorkers did see Chicago as their rival. And that rivalry shaped both cities. I mean, literally, physically helped shape them. And we'll get to the origin of that nickname, Second City. The story starts in the 1800s with... Well, is it rude to call it an inferiority complex? Can I be psychological for a second? I mean, I think
3: it was sort of an inferiority complex.
0: Newspaper historian Richard Younger.
3: The New York people, the eastern people, made royal fun of Chicago up until the Civil War. It's a swamp. Nobody wants to live there. The mosquitoes are the number one occupant of the place.
0: In the 1840s, Chicagoans couldn't really argue. But Chicago was growing. Americans believed that one city, maybe Milwaukee, St. Louis, Cleveland, one city would emerge as the great western metropolis. By the 1860s, Chicago had clawed its way into the running. One Chicagoan boasted,
1: The city that was unborn in 1830 in 1864 leads the cities of the whole earth in lumber, breadstuffs, and pork.
0: So Chicago had trade. But population was what counted then. And in 1865, Chicago still trailed St. Louis. But Chicago, fueled by its industry and the railroads, grew like mad. And by 1880, had blown St. Louis out of the water. By 1890, Chicago was the nation's, quote, second city in population behind New York. Now, New York hadn't been too worried, but around that time, the World's Columbian Exposition was announced, a.k.a. the World's Fair, and they thought it would be in New York. And then Chicago shows
3: up on the scene. Marshall Field and some of these other wealthy to-doers in Chicago, they put together this proposal, and with some wheeling and dealing, Chicago lands the World's Fair. All of a sudden, there's all these things that turn up in New York newspapers, and Mm about, you know, how the people in Chicago are uncultured. Women in Chicago have big feet.
0: But when New Yorkers went low, Chicagoans went low, taunting New York right back.
3: Every train they said that came to Chicago added to the population. And all the expectations were that in the census of 1900, that Chicago would have been the first city.
0: Is it clear that they were a little worried about Chicago at that point?
3: Not a little, a
0: lot. Chicagoans, on the other hand, were ready to be number one. But New York had a plan. Back then, New York was just Manhattan. But Brooklyn, right next door, was a very large city. So in 1898, New York merged with Brooklyn and the other boroughs, nearly doubling its population. Chicago looked at whether it could swallow up more nearby suburbs. And they were actually talking about consolidating,
3: like, Gary, Indiana, in suburbs in another state, you know, maybe even up into Wisconsin.
0: Yeah, city spanning three states wasn't practical. And Chicago realized it had come in second. People in Chicago shrug their shoulders and say, second city. But that term second city, it's just what they called the number two population city. It didn't develop into a nickname until 50 years later, when the New Yorker magazine writer A.J. Liebling spent a year in Chicago. He wrote about the city in a 1952 book called The Second City. Chicagoans took the book and its title as an insult and sent Liebling bushels of hate mail. Lieblingstone tone was snobby at times. He wrote that elite Chicagoans tend to fly to New York to see Broadway plays. It's not considered smart to admit to
1: having seen any play in Chicago, because this implies either A, you haven't seen the real play, or B, that you haven't the airplane fare, or C, That you are indifferent to nuances and might, therefore, just as well go back to Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, where you went to high school.
0: Snarky. But if you keep reading, Liebling's not so much criticizing Chicago's theater as an attitude. He writes, even when excellent productions come to Chicago, Chicagoans don't go see them. They assume their theater is worse than New York's even when it isn't. Again, inferiority complex. Now, that title, Second City, it stuck around. And some of the people I talked to on the streets suggest Chicagoans still have a chip on their shoulder.
1: They do, because Chicago is kind of upset that they think they're number two Second City.
0: Okay, but keep in mind, it was the Second City Improv Theater, not A.J. Liebling, that popularized that nickname. And in 1984, when Los Angeles passed Chicago in population, Chicago kept calling itself the Second City. It's Chicago that's keeping this thing going. Maybe because it's kind of fun. But when it comes down to what people really value, say, where they want to live, that is a different story. Let me leave you with this. Have you ever thought that you would rather live in New York City?
5: No. (laughs) No, not even a little bit.
1: No, I did live there, and I moved away for a reason, so... (laughs) No, there's no place like Chicago. Even though she has her problems, she's a beautiful city.
0: Our 1910 story was originally reported in 2016. Since then, Julia Backrack has moved on from the Chicago Park District and has her own business, designing tours and consulting about history. Ken Melvoinberg no longer does the Levy Tours of Chicago, but you can find other tours of seedy Chicago history if you poke around. And Harvey Young is currently Dean of the College of Fine Arts at Boston University and a professor of English and theater. And Chicago has not yet been passed by Houston as the nation's third largest city. We're still number three. We're still number three. Curious City is produced by Joe Disso and Jason Mark. These days, the show is edited by me, Jesse Dukes, filling in for Alexandra Solomon. Maggie Sivett is our digital and engagement producer. Adriana Cardona-Magigad is our reporter. We had voice acting help from Ty Fanning, Richard Steele, Aaron Cahoe, Jennifer White, and Peter Sagel. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation.